0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. Uh, our reading to m- this morning is Acts 24, uh, and this is God's Word, and it is eternally true. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus, And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you grant us by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissensions among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our, law, our own law, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands Ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in this attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. "'Since you can take note of the fact "'that no more than twelve days ago "'I went up to Jerusalem to worship. "'Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, "'nor in the city itself did they find me "'carrying on a discussion with anyone "'or causing a riot. "'Nor can they prove to you the charges "'of which they now accuse me. "'But this I admit to you, "'that according to the way which they call a sect, "'I do serve the God of our fathers, "'believing everything that is in accordance with the law, and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness... Self-control and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, "Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you." At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning.
1: Congratulations to our graduates today, one more time. Uh, that really is an achievement. You've done well, and we're proud of you. Uh, and welcome to those of you who just attend our youth group and your families. If you're visiting here today for the graduation recognition, we welcome you. I hope to get to meet you afterwards and say hi. We've been going through for a number of months a series on the book of Acts, and we're coming near to the end of that series. We're in chapter 24 today, and there's 28 chapters, so we're almost done. This last section is a section that's focused on the last trials and final sufferings of the Apostle Paul. Paul is a missionary uh, par excellence. He has gone all over the world, um, the known world at that time, uh, Greece and Asia Minor, and has evangelized places where the gospel has not been heard and has planted churches and has just done years of incredible work. And he has come one last time to Jerusalem having to to deliver a gift of money from the Gentile believers all over the world back to their roots, back to the Jews in Jerusalem, the origins of this Jesus movement and the people back there still on the ground. They've been divided for centuries because of their ethnicity and their covenant relationship to God. The Jews have been in covenant with, with the one true God, and the Gentiles have not. But this is through Jesus and the amazing things that he has accomplished and done in the last, at this point, uh, just 30, 40 years prior to this, Jesus has, uh, has uh, welcomed the Gentiles in. To the covenant community and to faith in Him, and Paul is the pioneer of this mission to the Gentiles. It's difficult, though, for the Jews back home to receive that and to accept it. Very difficult for them. They they just don't. It's stretching them too far. Well, Paul has had this vision, mission, and ambition to collect big gifts of money from the Gentile churches to bring them back to Jerusalem like a goodwill tour and to show the goodwill of the Gentile believers towards their Jewish brethren in the Lord. So he's come. That's why he's come back to Jerusalem. He knows he's coming into a hot zone. He knows he's facing lots of resentment and distrust on the part of the Jews. He tries to keep his head down and be unobjectionable as he can in his time, but a firestorm erupts. The moment Paul shows his face in the temple, there's some Jews from Asia who have... Uh, been enemies of his in the past they recognize him and they incite a mob, a riot against Paul they forcibly drag him out of the temple close the doors behind him and they start beating him up with an intent to kill him the Roman governors get involved the the Roman commander who's responsible for the peace and safety of the city gets involved, he comes to investigate he assumes Paul's the worst kind of (laughs) criminal because why would would the city be in an uproar about him so he takes him into custody And he's going to torture Paul to try to get to the bottom of what's going on. And Paul surprises him and says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And so that's a big gut check for this commander because now the highest standards of justice have to be met. He can't torture this guy. He's got to give him a fair hearing and a fair trial. This leads to some really interesting exchanges between Paul and the commander, Paul and the mob, Paul and the Jewish council, which the commander calls together to try to get to the bottom of who is this man and what's this all about? And, uh, but the, command, the poor commander for the life of him cannot get to the bottom of it as far as he can tell Paul has done nothing worthy of imprisonment or death what is with these people meanwhile the people are still calling for his execution death away with such a fellow from the earth is their cry the commander's like well what do I do I, I can't very well put the whole city in prison and let this guy go free <laughs> um, but I can't let him go free because they're going to kill him So what do I do? Well, matters get worse the next day because there's a plot that's formed by the Jews against Paul. Forty men bind themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. And they plot against it and they set up a scheme. Well, the commander, through God's providence, finds out about the scheme. And he decides, okay, what we need is a change of venue. Have you ever heard about this in in some legal matters? Sometimes things are too hot or too biased in a certain uh, uh, jurisdiction. And we have to move this case to another jurisdiction so we can get a fair hearing. And that's what this commander orders to be brought about. He has Paul carried under cloak of darkness in the middle of the night by 270 armed guards to Caesarea on the coast, where Paul, who's, who they know is a Roman citizen, is now going to be tried in a Roman court before our Roman ruler. A Roman judge. And that's what brings us to chapter 24. That's what's going on in the back background that launches us into this chapter. There's two basic movements here to chapter 24. The first 23 verses or so, we find Paul before Felix. Marcus Antonius Felix. He's the governor of Judea by appointment of the Roman emperor. And Paul's going to stand before him and hear charges against himself and respond to those charges before this ruler. So Paul stands before Felix in the first part. But then, in a very real sense, by the end of the chapter, we see some, the tables turned. And we see uh, Felix and his wife Drusilla standing before Paul as he faithfully ministers God's word to them. It's really amazing. I can't imagine that I or you would have done what Paul did in the, in this, under these circumstances, but this was a man who was completely, he completely lived to minister the word of God under any circumstance to whoever would hear, and to love them particularly as people, and to be very pointed and direct in applying God's word to their need and their situation. And that's what we see Paul doing in this chapter. It's just really beautiful. Let's look at the first part, which is Paul before Felix. It's a study in lies and how to respond to them. In verse 1, we see after five days, so Paul's been there waiting this trial, this court hearing for five days. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. That's Ananias. Ananias. The high priest who in the last chapter in the council had ordered Paul to be punched in the face because of what he had said in his own defense. A very, it's, a, it's an unlawful act of the high priest, and, uh, but this is the guy. It, this, he's very prejudiced and biased against Paul. They are out to get Paul, and they liar up. They hire a, 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 the hired gun. Tertullus, an, an attorney, it's called in, in, uh, in this English translation, but he's more like an orator. He's a, probably not a Jew. He's probably not even a Roman, but he's a man pro- very skilled in the art of public speaking and persuasion, presenting cases, and they've hired this guy. They're not taking any chances. They want to get their man. So they bring Tertullus with them, and Tertullus represents their plea before Felix. Tertullus's speech is artfully constructed. Those who know Greek tell me that it is very flowery and ornate. But it is one big old pack of lies. One lie after another. There's hardly any truth in anything he says. Beginning with a form of lying that the Bible refers to as flattery. He opens with a great deal of flattery towards Felix. Verse 2, it says, After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, there's a sense in which that just sounds respectful and a good way to start, you know, to to, to say something nice and respectful and kind to this ruler. But it's completely disingenuous, and that's just so evident if you know the first thing about this man and his history. That is Felix himself, the ruler. He was notoriously bad and wicked man, and his rule was, was known for social unrest, cruelty, and intrigue. And here are these men praising the order and the reforms he's brought, and they're also saying that how thankful they are Um, everywhere and all the time for this guy. Well, he's representing the Jews. The Jews especially hate this man. And here's one of the key reasons. Just a couple of years before this, back in AD 58, this is probably 60 to 62, what's happening here. Just a couple of years before this, Felix had ordered the clandestine assassination by stabbing of the Jewish high priest Jonathan. In the temple. Because Jonathan had the nerve to question the way he was, that Felix was meddling in Jewish affairs. He had him murdered, assassinated. A bunch of people had knives under their robes. They mingled with the worshipers, pretended to just be there reverently. And when they saw an opportunity, they killed the high priest in the temple. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> So here they are presenting their case, saying these things. Now, it's not wrong to be respectful to a judge. Paul is going to say something respectful at the start of his defense in, in verse 10. It's not much, but it is a kind way to begin, and it's respectful. He, he, he's going to praise the man's tenure. Well, I see that you've been a judge for a long time. <laughs> but at least it's true. Nothing that these men are saying is true. and completely disingenuous. It's flattery. And the Bible says flattery is sin. Flattery is something we're to watch out for. Flattery is something we're not to be guilty of ourselves. We are to speak the truth. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to say kind things or respectful things or encouraging things. Often, encouragement needs to be said because there's truth to it. We need to hear things about ourselves that we, we have so many fears and insecurities within ourselves. I do. It's helpful to hear somebody say, listen, I want to affirm something that I see that is good about you and that is going on and that is true. It's necessary and good. I'm not flat, don't confuse flattery with encouragement. Encouragement's good and necessary as long as it's true. If it's not true... And if it's designed to curry favor with for your own selfish ambition, somebody, or to further your own evil schemes or aims, then it's what the Bible calls flattery and it's a hateful sin to God. It's a subset of lying, manipulation, deceiving. We should hate flattery. You know, there's a lot of flattery in the world. Anybody think of evidence or examples of flattery? The flattery, though, that I'm most concerned about, sometimes it's very subtle. In this case, if you start to know anything about Felix, it becomes pretty obvious and it's pretty gross. But sometimes flattery is just very subtle. And it's even in the church. It's in Christian books. It's at Christian conferences. It's in Christian teachers and podcasts. Pastors, preachers, Bible teachers who carefully avoid things that ruffle their audience's feathers are really guilty of flattery because they're not helping them and paul by the end of this chapter is going to show us a wonderful example of faithful christian witness and ministry that's actually helpful and true but it's costly and risky because you're actually taking the word of god which is sharp and pointy and cuts and putting it in in love for the good of and healing of a soul that you're ministering to it's not done cruelly but it's done in love and that is the that is the opposite of what much christian teaching which carefully avoids anything that's going to make their audience their hearers uncomfortable anybody ever been uncomfortable under a sermon i have That's not a bug. It's a feature. That's when God is actually working. We say this about the gym. No pain, no gain. (laughs) Why why don't we accept that in our spiritual life? We have to be challenged. The Bible is described as a sharp sword. That means it's got to cut and do some damage to accomplish its good healing work in our lives. And so... We need to be we need to be sensitive to flattery. We need to have better a better nose for it than we do. There's a lot of flatterers out there. Paul describes his own personal apostolic ministry in Colossians as no, in the Thessalonians. Let me read it for you. He says this. He says we never came with flattering speech, as you know. And they probably did know. We never came with flattering speech. We weren't here to, to, to puff you up. We were here to speak the truth. For, and nor did we come with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. We're not after your silver and gold, says the Apostle Paul. We're not after anything from you, except we seek your good. And you can't really seek someone's good spiritually without being willing to say the truth, to take a risk, to offend, so that they can be healed, so they can come to know themselves, so they can understand God better. These truths, truths like that are challenging truths. Well, Tertullus goes on from flattery to blatantly misconstrue the facts of this case verse 5, he says, we have found this man, Paul, to be a real pest. (laughs) I love that expression. He's really saying, literally, he's a pestilence. He's a disease. He's a cancer. And a fellow, he says, we found him also to be a fellow who stirs up dissension, fighting, strife. He stirs it up among all the Jews throughout the world, and he's a ringleader. You don't ever want to be called a ringleader. That's almost always disparaging. He's a ringleader among the Nazarenes. He's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. He's a ringleader. (laughs) Words matter. Well, now it's true that the apostle Paul, that trouble and turmoil and conflict and unrest surrounded the apostle Paul wherever he went, right? That's true. But whose fault was it? Was it the Apostle Paul's? That's what Tertullus is insinuating. Not insinuating, he's claiming, he's asserting. Is it the Apostle Paul's fault? No, it's men like him. Well, like these Jews all over the world who are the who are responsible for the trouble, for the strife, for the dissension. And that's because Paul himself is a peaceable man. He desires peace. He is a peacemaker. Making peace between sinful man and God who are needing to be reconciled through Jesus Christ in the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul's about. But not everyone accepts it. Not not everyone accepts the claims of Jesus. And especially many Jews all over the world rejected their Messiah and rejected the ministry and the preaching of Paul. And they started riots. And they beat him up. And they stirred up the crowds against him and the leaders against him and all of the cities of all the world. It was not Paul's fault. He was a peacemaker, okay? They're the ringleaders. They're the instigators. They're the disturbers of the peace. Tertullus goes on in verse six and he says, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now that's a pernicious lie. That one's been sticking around for a while. They've had some days to get to the bottom of facts. When Paul was in the temple, the Jews from Asia who saw him and and took him in hand and drug him out and started beating him up, they did that. It says, supposing, this is back in chapter 23, it says, supposing that he had brought a Gentile into the temple with him. So that's why that's, that's how they justify their action. This man is polluting this temple with a Gentile because that's the kind of thing this man would do and we saw this man around town with a Gentile. So they just supposed that he had done it, okay? But they've had some days to figure out that that's not the case. They've had some days for temperatures to cool, people to calm down, and yet here they are still persisting in this deception. They're sticking with it. This is untrue. It's a lie. And it's worse than the original mistake, or whatever you'd call it, the original lie. This one's worse, because it's premeditated. Verse 6, he goes on with another lie, and he says, And then we arrested him. I think that's a bit rich. What they did was they were unlawfully beating him up without authority or cause. They didn't arrest him. And then he says, we wanted to judge him according to our own law. I don't think they did. No, they wanted Paul dead. That's what they wanted. And they they would have used their law in any way they could, manipulatively or unlawfully, um, to to get an end to this man. And then this one's really special. This is egregious, this one, verse 7. But Lysias the commander came along, and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. So here we are. Now, they're the mob. It's, it's the commander's job to put down a mob. It's the commander's bo- job to, to keep peace, to make peace, to protect the innocent. If he was violent, this makes, this make, I just, I'm starting to, right, right here, I'm thinking about trying to be a policeman today. How can you be a policeman under the climate that we work in today? God bless you if that's you. But here's this commanding officer just trying to keep peace and protect the innocent, trying to sort this out. And here he's being blamed for government overreach, for tyranny, for being brutal, overly brutal, or having a disproportionate response. These are just all lies. Lies, 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 lies. Does that bear any resemblance to the world in which we live? That presentation of the facts? There's some truth. I mean, it follows the story. But my goodness, what a mischaracterization intentionally of everything that actually happened. Anybody recognize the world we're living in as you read those verses? I don't even, I feel like no desire to turn the news on. Because I can't trust Fox, I can't trust CNN, I can't trust uh, the, the subpoenas, I can't trust Trump's response to it, I can't trust anything. It's just we are inured to, we are in a swamp of, can you say swamp anymore without it being loaded? We have, we, there's just lies. We are stewing in lies. Lies are everywhere. This is, they've just become normal. We expect politicians we expect the media. We expect social media and, and Facebook to lie. That's just what's what we expect. And nobody thinks hardly anymore of lying. Lying, we have elevated however we feel about the day to above any facts or truth. Feelings are above truth. And in a world like that, where feelings are elevated above truth, it's just whatever you say, whatever you project, whatever you claim... Today is your truth. The fact that we even say things like your truth, my truth, (laughs) denies truth, the existence of truth. Listen, God hates lies. God hates lies. This is so clear in scripture. Here's a verse from Proverbs 12. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord hates them. He abominates them. But those who do deal faithfully are his delight. He loves faithfulness and integrity and truth, and he hates lying. We are not to be a part of the culture of deceit. I'm not here to point fingers at the world. I'm here to point fingers at you and me. We are to be different. We are to, have, we're to be set Free by truth. We're to be people of the truth. We're to speak the truth in love. The truth is of utmost importance to us who belong to God. Is to be. I hope it is. I hope we will grow in our appreciation for and love of the truth, commitment to the truth in our lives. Lying. Are you a liar? Do you lie to impress your friends? Do you lie to get out of trouble? God hates it. We need to repent of our lying. Boys and girls, you listening? Teenagers? Moms and dads? Husbands, wives? Pastors? We need to repent of lying. God hates it. It's something in scripture that is described as being part of, for Christians, the old self. It says, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 9, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. To be in Christ is to be a new creature. It's to have put behind you much sin and an orientation and desire for sin. And that's, that's part of that old nature and those old desires, which we're supposed to take off. And put on our new self in Christ. Our new identity. And to live out of that. And that identity is truth. He is the truth. And we are to speak the truth. And be committed to it. Well, Tertullus finishes and rests his case. And the Jews wholeheartedly affirm the lies that he's just told. They join in the attack, it says in verse 9. And I'm sure it did feel like an attack. If you have any sensitivity to truth, like Paul and probably hope to some degree Felix did, you understand what's going on, what's being said. So with a nod, Felix in verse 10 invites Paul to respond. I want to draw your attention to just a few aspects of how Paul defends himself here. First of all, he defends himself cheerfully. Cheerfully. That's pretty remarkable under the circumstances. How would you be feeling if you were on the hot seat like that and, the, and, the, and the being accused in such a dishonest and horrible way and had suffered so much? You'd be feeling sorry for yourself. You'd be feeling defensive. You'd be feeling like you're insulted and you'd be ready to get them. And Paul's response is to be, make his defense cheerfully. He says, I cheerfully make my defense before you, Felix, in verse 10. And that's amazing. Secondly, his defense of himself is truthful. It's truthful. Paul honors Felix at the beginning without stooping to flattery. He says, knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation. That's a respectful beginning. For a long time you've been a judge, and I look forward cheerfully to making my defense before you because you've seen a lot of things, and I'm pretty sure that you're going to understand and judge rightly in this case. I think that's what he's saying. But it's not flattery. The fact, what he's pointing to, is that Felix has been a judge for a long time. And that's true. He counteracts the Jews' false assertions that have just been made with a handful of straightforward, verifiable facts. Facts are so helpful. In court cases, I've come to appreciate watching, observing the work of attorneys in our church, sometimes in our behalf. Facts, facts are so purifying and so helpful. Fact number one that Paul brings forward in verse 11, he says, No more than 12 days ago, I came up to Jerusalem to worship. You're, you could just easily verify that. J- I just got here. How could all of this be happening that they say, I just got here no more than 12 days ago. Five of those days I've spent in your jail. <laughs> and a few days before that under the under incarceration um, restraint by the commander. So this, whatever's happening, you know, it's, it's a stretch to say it's all my fault. No, fact number two, no, in verse 12, nowhere did anybody find me even talking to anyone, let alone starting a riot. I have not I am not the instigator of any trouble here. Nobody here can claim to have seen me doing any of those things. Fact number 3. After in verse 17, this is a little later on. He says, "After being away several years, I came back to Jerusalem. So I've been gone for a while, and here's why I came back. I came back to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. That's that's my motive." what I'm here. That's, that's what he speaks in his defense. There are other aspects, but those are the facts that he presents and they're, they're very plain and straightforward and there's no deceit in them. Now it's really interesting to me that he doesn't like, you know the expression don't fight or wrestle with a pig in mud? You know that expression? Don't wrestle with a pig in mud. Why? because you're going to get dirty, both of you, and a pig likes mud. <laughs> so here's this whole chain of, of false facts, supposed facts, mischaracterizations that have been laid out against him. And Paul does somewhat address them by his presentation of the facts, but it's not like a blow for blow. It's not like, oh, no, that was wrong, what they said. And judge, you need to understand that what they said was, was a lie there. And he just doesn't do that. He simply puts forward some simple, undeniable, easy to verify facts. Fourthly, his argument in defense of himself is very sound. It's it's couched under uh, very sound legal principles. He hangs his hat on this principle. The burden of evidence has not been met. It can't be met. And here's why. I didn't do those things. And none of these men that are here accusing me saw me do any of those things, nor can they even claim to have seen me do those things because they were not there when those things supposedly happened. Now there's some men, he goes on in verse 18 to say, there were some men from Asia that were there at the time. And if they had something to claim about those events, they should be here to say it, but they're not here. So everything that you're hearing is hearsay. And so it can't, it's not admissible, it's, it's not, this is not grounds for anything. That's his legal principle and defense. And It's a very sound and long-established one. So that's what Paul says. He doesn't whine or play the victim, he's cheerful. He doesn't flatter or lie like his opponents do, he simply tells the truth. He doesn't hide his beliefs. Oh, this is one I forgot. Let me say this, that he... His response is faithful. This is beautiful. It's the thing to me that's most beautiful about Paul's defense of himself, is he doesn't he doesn't hide his faith and his true beliefs and his core commitments. Look at this in verse 14, he says, This I admit to you. So he's got he's got one admission to make. This, sir, I admit to you. If this is my guilt, guilty is charged that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. I believe the Bible, word for word, all of it. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, because of these things and my beliefs, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. That's a really beautiful testimony of his faith and his commitment. And he's willing to say, I submit that to you. If there's fault in that, yes, (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll gladly be guilty. But that's me, sir. This is me. He's not hiding who he is and what he believes. If you were Paul's attorney, though, or if Paul had an attorney in this matter... Would that be what an attorney would, would um, recommend to his to his defendant as an argument that's going to help him in court? How would that play today in court? Well, Your Honor, I know I've been accused of this, but I just want to explain my faith to you for a minute. I think it's beautiful. It's just beautiful that Paul is an example of Paul not missing opportunities to testify even in court to his love and belief in the Lord well felix is not ignorant about paul's beliefs he has a certain knowledge about this way. We learn from verse 22. He's, he's, he's not been hiding in a closet. He's been paying attention to what's going on in his, under his domain. Who's who? What they're fighting about? He knows a thing or two about this. And the differences in view between Paul and his opponents. And he probably has sympathy for Paul. Because he knows that the Jews' hatred of this man is somewhat fueled by their anti-Jewish, or their anti-Gentile sentiments, their prejudice. And he probably thinks that Paul's somewhat progressive and a fair-minded individual. Regardless, Felix decides to put off making a ruling at this time, and here's how he puts it off. Felix, uh, uh, the commander Lysias, has been brought into the courtroom by reputation and by accusation from the opponents. And he says, well, I'm not going to make a decision in this matter until Lysias has come and I can talk to him directly about what's been going on, what he saw. Meanwhile, Paul is kept in custody in Caesarea, but not without a good deal of freedom and privilege. Paul's friends are allowed to visit him and to meet his needs and minister to him. That's what we learn in verse twenty-three. And but this state of things of Paul in sort of in, in incarceration, in in prison, it's probably not like stinky rat-infested prison. Last we found Paul, he was in Herod's praetorium, which is this beautiful palace on the edge of the sea. And his friends can come. He's he can't leave, he's not free to go, because there's just too much at stake with letting him free but here, here he's allowed lots of freedom and is probably put up in a nice place. But he's, in, he's sort of indefinitely left there. And there's several reasons given in this text as to why Paul is not just let go. The first is, it's partly due to pressure from the Jews. They're probably, if they can't get this guy killed, then they're at least happy to have him neutralized. Not free to go about and to influence people anymore. So he's stuck there in jail. And they're pretty, they're content with that. And they probably put significant pressure on the rulers to, to keep that, the state of affairs. And it says in verse 27 here at the end that Felix left him there for two years, wanting to do a favor to the Jews. Another reason that we're given is that Felix had a love of money and was pretty corrupt. And he was hoping that Paul would come up with some bribery money that he could extort out of him to get him released from jail. So he had that kind of desire. He's not a good dude. But there is also a third aspect that we sense here, and that is, I think he really does want to know more about what Paul has to teach. He has some measure of hunger to know the truth, at least to hear what Paul's about. He's curious. He's intrigued. And so that brings us to this last section, where up till now, Paul has been standing before Felix and now, out of Felix's own curiosity, he finds himself standing before Paul and the ministry of the word of God. In verse 24, we, say, we see that uh, it says, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Drusilla was Felix's third wife, the daughter of Herod Agrippa, remember the Herods, that sort of dynasty in, in the, of, of rulers in Judea at this time. Um, they had become Jews by conversion, um, but, and, but they were sort of of the ruling class, and there had been a lot of Herods, and they hadn't, all, they had, hadn't been good or godly. Well, this daughter of Drusilla was, the, was famously beautiful and was married off at a very young age to an Arabian king. And Felix somehow met her, saw her, admired her beauty, and desired her for his wife. And according to Josephus, the historian, he sent a sorcerer to her to persuade her to uh, divorce her husband and come and be married to him. I don't know about the sorcerer, but we do know that she was divorced from this man and hadn't been married to uh, to Felix, so they're living in an adulterous relationship, and that's and, and as they come into town together, they both send for Paul to hear him preach about Jesus Christ. And so here's what G- Paul, how Paul uses that opportunity. Here's what he does. He testifies boldly and pointedly of Christ before them. His preaching of Jesus. It was not like a lot of preaching of Jesus. There's a lot of people today who would want to say, call foul about Paul's presentation of the gospel here, simply because it involves these themes. Ready? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That doesn't sound gospel-centered. Seriously, there's a lot of good, faithful preachers who live under the pressure of their not sometimes their own congregants, but often just famous pastors on the internet who write books about how you should do things. Their instincts are good, but they want to measure up to their heroes. And so they're spoiled. But Paul is not spoiled. He understands the importance and the necessity of conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. And does do, 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 so righteousness, he, he talks about righteousness, about the moral standard God requires of all men. That's a pretty high standard, God's perfections in his law. He talks about self-control. He talks about the, the purpose and the proper use of our appetites and our desires and how we should carry ourselves and restrain ourselves and live in, in obedience to God's commands even when our bodies and our desires tell us to do otherwise. Self-control. He talks about the judgment to come, how all of us are going to have to stand and give an account of ourselves before God. Does that sound like pertinent themes for Drusilla and Felix to hear? So what does that tell us? And that's all under the heading in Paul's world of preaching Christ. And you see that from Romans. If you read the book of Romans, at the beginning he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he, he opens up his view of the gospel. And it's not like what people call gospel-centered. It's everything. It's robust. It's judgment. It's sin. It's the Jews. It's, uh, it's just a lot. And Paul, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul work to convict them? This reminds me of when Jesus says and promises the Spirit to come, he says he's going to come and he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is very much the themes that Paul is focusing on here, which means he's doing the Holy Spirit's work, trying to minister the work of the Spirit in their life, bringing them under the conviction of sin. Why? Why? So that they can be healed, so that they can know theirsel- themselves, so that they can know their need. So, they can repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus. That's why. So, Paul's message isn't theory. It's not like a lecture. It's very pertinent. It's personal, no doubt. He's not dumb. He knows these people, he knows what's what, what's going on. And he talks to them, and it gets under Felix's skin. He's afraid. He becomes afraid in verse 25 and he says, go away, Paul, for the present and when I find time, I'll summon you. This is because he's afraid of what Paul is warning him about. Now listen. Do you ever get under anybody's skin? If you don't, I mean, for in the name of Jesus. If you're never if you're just perfectly fine, if 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 you're if everybody if you just go down nice all the time, then you're probably not doing it right. And by that I mean you're probably not actually loving anybody. Cuz there are people dying in trespasses and sins. This is life and death. They're dying, drowning in sin, incredible bondage. And the only way to help them is to start talking about that bondage. Pastor Weeks was saying in our staff meeting this week that the the study of Acts has been helpful to him personally because he's grown in confidence that these things aren't actually complicated to say and talk about what Paul had to had to offer people was actually pretty simple what's hard about it is that you risk rejection and the same difficulties that Paul experienced as a result and that's why we don't do it we spend our lives being self-protective and safe which means we're not doing anybody any good or truly serving the lord and it's at the place of our love. It's loveless. It's, so, Pastor Crum, David Crum, talked to a group of men on Friday night about his experience as a Vietnam vet and what God was doing in his life and how was at the time and how he was processing that as a soldier, as a Marine. And towards the end of his talk, he mentioned his time as a chaplain and how he had had a group of men that he was worshiping with and preaching to and how he drew their attention to a, a, a part of, of the Gospels. Refresh my memory. What was it, David? It was, oh, greater love has no one than this, no man than this, but that a man lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he made the wonderful point to those men under his, under his shepherding care. Men Jesus did have a greater love even than that because he laid down his life for his enemies. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. That's a beautiful point. Here we see Paul doing the same thing as Jesus, walking in the steps to 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 the best of his ability to be like his master. Felix is not his friend. His neck is on the line under Felix. And what does he do? He risks offending Felix and making Felix mad about him for the good of Felix's soul as a faithful, loving minister of the gospel. And that's Paul under incarceration You and me are free men and women. What are we doing with our freedom to love people? Much easier circumstances all around us all the time. Are we going to just live self-protective lives and be no earthly good to anybody? Or are we going to love the lost? I want to love the lost. I want this to be a church of people who are willing to risk things for Jesus' sake and for the good care of lost and dying sinners all around us who need to hear about Jesus. But they can't hear about Jesus and have it mean anything if we don't talk to them about their sin. Let's be like Paul, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless this time that we've spent together in your word and that you would conform us more and more into the image of your son and of your holy apostle Paul, that we would learn from their example to love others. Thank you for the love of Jesus and his sacrifice. Thank you for Paul and his sacrifices for you, for his Lord. And how he labored to plant the gospel and how we have been the recipients of that even in our day. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Help us, Father, to be faithful and to be on mission for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.